Good morning. It's wonderful to be back at Trinity. If you are coming to this passage for the first time that Jill read for us so ably, that great long passage, you will probably be puzzled. You will probably be scratching your head, and if you're not, you weren't paying attention. Um, So there we got a picture of puzzlement. If you are coming to this passage the second, fourth, fifth, sixth time, you may also have some questions and some, find some things a little bit puzzling. That's not unusual. So let's just ask God to speak to us as we unpack this passage together. Father God, thank you that you know our hearts. You uh, read us in a way that uh, surpasses our understanding. Lord, thank you that you are able to communicate to us. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Um, speak your life and truth into us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Some reasons why the passage is puzzling. I'm going to knock things over here. Um, Why did those who believed in him, believed in Jesus, give him such a hard time? Uh, I mean, it it seems to be a, a real row going on, doesn't it? Why is the dialogue so polarized? I mean, there were some really strong statements being made back and forth. Why is it also, um, you know, have you been involved in a conversation that compares with that at all? Do you use that kind of vocabulary in your daily conversation? What, if anything, does this have to do with us? And we should always ask that question. If we're afraid of asking that question, we really are just playing games. What has it got to do with us? We're overhearing a conversation that went on uh, thousands of years ago about things that we don't normally talk about. So to start with, who is Jesus speaking to? This is part of uh, a key part of unpacking it. Um, you've got to imagine Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. They are Jewish people, and we are stepping in partway through a dialogue that's going on. Even though the passage was so long, that's not the whole thing. It started earlier. And there was this ding-dong going on beforehand. And you reach verse 30, and it says, many of those present put their faith in him. And then our English Bibles insert a break and a new heading and a new verse number and carries on. And so you hear it and you think, well, we're starting afresh. We're not. It's a continuation. Bear with me. And Jesus spoke to those who believed in him. So it's a mixed crowd. And amongst that crowd, he is speaking to those who have said, yes, this is true. But in that dialogue that had been going on for some time, they were not all talking in unison. There were spokesmen who were speaking for the people, the senior people, who were cross-examining Jesus, questioning what he was saying, challenging, how can that be right? So Jesus speaks to those who put their faith in him. And then the others there, the ones who do not agree, answer. Because they're all fellow Jews, they're all in the same boat, and they answer as for the others. So that's why it continues in that argumentative uh, tone. And if anyone's got a problem with that and wants to discuss the, the, the exegesis of the passage, I can see you afterwards. But I promise you that's what's happening. So there were opponents... And then he speaks to the believers, 
It doesn't say, and those who believed replied. It goes on, the Jews said, they said. It's the same people who were speaking before. Those opponents come back in, and it continues this dialogue, people reacting to what he has said, which he directed at those who believed. And all these people that he's speaking to see themselves as heirs of Abraham. That's not just a sort of incidental cultural background. This is a community of people who understand themselves as the heirs of Abraham to whom God had made such extraordinary promises. They were people who understood the world they lived in from this point of view. God has a plan that he's unfolding. He has made promises. A day is going to come when God is going to fulfill those promises. And it really mattered to them what their relationship with Abraham was. That's why they keep going on about him. We probably, most of us do not go around talking about being heirs of Abraham. But Jesus has been going around doing things that are quite extraordinary. He has been performing his miracles, saying things, doing things. That means he cannot be ignored. And if he truly is the fulfillment of all these things, then it absolutely matters whether what he says is true or not. So it's a very highly charged atmosphere. It's one in which people can't just go away and have their opinions. Jesus uses some very uncompromising words. I'm just going to lift out some of the phrases about himself here. What did Jesus say? I set people free. (laughs) That's quite a big claim, isn't it? I am from God. That doesn't give you a lot of room for manoeuvre when talking with someone. I am from God. You could try it in the greengrocers. I honour God. I give life. Who gives life? Only God gives life. Before Abraham, I am. Now, this is not evidence of a poor education. Um, It's not a grammatical error. This is something that really, really resonated because when God revealed himself to Moses, preparing him to go to Egypt, he said, this is my name, I am who I am, and the personal name uh, that the Jews use for God is I am, Yahweh. I am. And several times we find Jesus quite intentionally using that I am to refer to himself. Before Abraham, I am. Indirectly, he is saying, I am God in the flesh in your midst. And there were all these prophecies in the past of how God would visit his people. And they understood it in different ways. But if God was really standing before them, everything changes. You and I were not there. But if it was truly God who was standing there saying... Before Abraham, I am. That then becomes relevant to us. Because that then becomes the the focus around which everything must revolve. If God is speaking, if God is fulfilling his promises, if he is the one who is there giving life, if he is the one who, who sets people free, then it becomes relevant to everyone. And if we are not already inclined to believe that, it's quite shocking, it's quite upsetting. He said some quite strong things to them, just sort of separating out the dialogue. He said, you have no room for my word in your hearts. He said, you want to kill me? He said, you belong to the devil. You do not belong to God. Mm, Not very compromising there. Usually when somebody uses that type of language, uh, emotive language, 
They are trying to manipulate, to, to force people into responding in some way. And if you just take it out of context, it would be very understandable. Well, what's he trying to do? Is he trying to beat them up verbally? But actually, this is part of a longer story, and he's already said, I am going to be killed. This was a matter of fact. It wasn't an outbreak of hysteria. You're trying to destroy me. This was a clear statement. He unfolded it to his disciples. This is a fulfillment of what the prophets have said. This is what's going to happen. And so, in the course of this dialogue, in which they all the time are pushing back, he is stating more and more clearly their situation. God has come. This is the moment for the fulfillment of the promises. Everything depends on you believing me and trusting me. And that's true for us today. Should we take his way of speaking as an example to follow? Follow Jesus. He is the one we follow. Should we talk like this? I'm I'm sure that's not everybody's question, but it's certainly my question. Is this how I'm supposed to speak too? I think it's a good question to ask. You put it in its context, you find Jesus spoke in so many different ways, didn't he? He spoke in parables. He spoke with indirect communication. He told stories that people took away and mulled over. He very often spoke with very gentle words, to, especially to people who were very needy, people who were excluded, people who were alienated. He spent time giving patient explanation. And he communicated with people through acts of kindness. And with my ministry, as I'm getting to know Muslims in my particular area, this is very much the pattern, this other side of Jesus, if you like, of using the parables, using, you know, what what does it mean to find that you come across treasure and it costs you everything to own it? That's, That's the kind of language I'm very often using. Jesus used a whole range of ways of communicating, and we're looking at a particular example in this passage in response to people who are pushing back, challenging, refusing, and it gets more and more direct, more and more assertive, as it were. But in all these types, whether he's speaking in parables, whether he's speaking gently to the broken, whether he's doing a patient explanation with his disciples who were slow, so slow to pick up, he always had these characteristics. He, he was never compromising his word, never compromising his truth. He might, he might wrap it, he might make it easier to grasp, but he never compromised the content. He was never negotiating, never looking for some kind of middle ground we could all agree on. Jesus doesn't negotiate with us, neither then nor now. And he's always speaking as from God. You don't have to be speaking through a loud hailer or confronting people with their, um, their folly, or their wickedness even, or their ignorance, to be speaking from God, both gently and directly, um, assertively or indirectly. Whatever it is, that consciousness of speaking from God is something that he wants us to learn and grow in. Anyway, it draws out indignant responses in this passage. Lots of indignant responses. You can just feel the temperature rising as, it, as you go through that reading. Some of the things they're saying, we don't need setting free. We are already favoured. Who do you think you are? Which unpacked is, you have no right to speak to us this way. 
I was recently in a prolonged and intense exchange with a young Muslim man. Uh, it started with a face-to-face conversation. It continued with a, with a WhatsApp. And he would keep bringing me words from Jesus or from other parts of the Bible and saying, look, this is what it says. You should be a Muslim. You should believe in Muhammad because the Bible says this. And I would say, I would reply, well, that's interesting. Yes, the Bible does say this. And if you read a couple of verses on, you find this. And that shows you that you should know absolute rejection. You believe this is the word of Jesus. Two sentences down, no. That bit must have been changed. That bit must be corrupted. Go back to the other bit. And we went round and round in circles. But that indignant response, it wasn't just an intellectual argument. It was, if this other thing is true, then everything I hold dear falls apart. And the words of Jesus can be that shattering. I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago of spending some time with a young woman who was brought up in a British Hindu family, a family originally from India. She was born and raised here. And it was a Brahmin family. That means it was the top caste of uh, the Hindu religion. She said, when our family visited someone, our mere presence was a blessing to them. We are the purest and most holy of our people and of anyone else for that matter. Uh, And I was brought up as a Brahmin. I was very... Uh, intentional about maintaining all the rituals that uh, affirmed and built up her status as a, a person of Brahmin ancestry. Very aware of her status of being a blessing and a source of blessing to others, a holy person in the midst of needy people. And she went away to university, and at university she met some, uh, some live Christians, and she was very taken with them. She was very impressed with the, the sort of relationship with God they were talking about, and the, the freedom they had, and the joy they had, the confidence. She was really quite struck, and she got to know some of them, and um, really sort of pushed in to, to find out more how this thing worked, and who could be included. And she, she got to this place with a, with a good friend of hers, they were really discussing what it was, how it worked, who Jesus is. And Hindus have no problem having Jesus amongst many, many deities. And she came to this sentence, it is only through Jesus that our sins can be forgiven. And she was outraged. She says, I was deeply offended. I just refused to speak to that woman anymore. Her response was deep, it was real, it was authentic... And it was one of anger. Because it threw into doubt absolutely everything her life was built on. It threw into doubt all that her her family meant and their place in society. That actually, if everything revolves around Jesus, then all these other things I believe in that I practice, my status, they fall away. And she cut off relationship with Christians. And she went off on her own way. She graduated. She got a job. She was living in London. And... She came to a point in her 20s where she became very conscious that, um, that she did not live up to the ideals that she believed in. That she was not as pure and holy as people said she was. That actually what went on in her heart, what went on in her head was not right. And she could not, by her own effort, make herself what she thought she ought to be. And opposite our house, there was a church with a big billboard type thing that kept putting up these verses. 
And she would stand outside in the morning waiting for the bus, reading these signs. And a battle went on in her heart. And she remembered what had happened back at university. Could it possibly be true that actually Jesus is the key to having a right relationship with God, with having sins dealt with, with being truly clean? And over several weeks, she she wrestled with this thought. And then one day, she just walked into the church. And it became a guilty secret that she went to church. And Jesus met her there, turned around. She went back and told her family. They were horrified. But several members of her family are now following Jesus with her. Something real happened. But let's not forget the indignation that she felt on hearing the claims of Jesus. In this passage, people are really angry with Jesus. What he's saying is really divisive and polarizing. The question is not, is it nice? The question is not, are people upset? The question is, is it true? Because if it's true, everything changes. Jesus, most of the words spoken in that passage are spoken to people that didn't believe. Let's come back to the, what he said to those who do believe. If you hold to my teaching, you are my disciples. You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'd like to highlight that this is talking about a process. It's not talking about an instantaneous transaction. It's talking about something ongoing. What is a disciple? A disciple is not somebody who signs up for an evening class. It's not somebody who follows you on Twitter. A disciple, properly understood, is somebody who has decided to follow and obey and be instructed and trained by a master. It is an ongoing commitment. It's not a pick and mix, or let's have a bit of that and a bit of this. No, from now on, this is my Lord with a small L. Just any regular disciple, this is the person who is going to instruct me how to live. This is the person who's going to set my direction. I am now a disciple. If you are truly my disciples... So if you hold to my teaching, you are my disciples. The disciples are the ones who believe in him and as a result follow his teaching and form their life around him. Then, process going on, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The word free is a funny word. It has come to mean something today which is quite different to what Jesus or his hearers understood. So today, freedom, being free means You can say what you like, you can do what you like, and increasingly you can be what you like. You decide what you are. That is freedom. That is how we understand it in our our contemporary world. Neither Jesus nor his listeners understood it that way. Because they lived in a world where they were slave and free, and everybody knew who was slave and who was free. Many people lived in extended households, and they were slave and they were free. And that's why the dialogue went the way it, was, the way it did, about who, who, has, who has permanency in the household. He's speaking to the heirs of Abraham, the biological descendants, who gloried in being part of God's household, God's covenant people, defined as being descendants of Abraham. And there was the slave and the free. There was the slave and the free in Abraham's house. And the slave had to leave. The slave had no permanent place. That's all embedded in the background of Jesus talking to them. Slave and free. It's why he goes on to say, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son 
And to be inclusive, a son or daughter belongs to it forever. We can get into the cultural anthropology of that later, maybe. But a slave has no permanent place. A child is permanently part of the family. That's at the heart of what he's saying to believers. It is sin, the rejection of God and his ways, that makes us, put, gives us slave status. No permanence. No real right to belong. But if the son... The, 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 the representative of the master, if the son sets you free, then you have real freedom. Then you become a freed person. We don't live in a world with free slave and freed people who have made that transition. So it doesn't resonate with us immediately. But he is talking about a status. Totally understood by those listening to him because they lived in that world about having a status with God, of being part of God's household. They said we are part of God's household because of where we were born. And today, people have all sorts of reasons for giving those indignant responses. Well, do you know who we are? We are smart people. We are nice people. We are English people. We are civilized people. We are respectable people. We have all our reasons why we jolly well ought to be in the household of God. What's wrong with him? And Jesus speaks a word into that. It is the son that makes you free. He gives you the status to be in the household of God. And it calls for a response. It's either true or it isn't. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Are we living in that freedom, that security of knowing we belong in the household of God? Having that permanence, having that assurance, that is what God intends to have. That is what Jesus calls us into. And that is resolved in our own hearts, how we respond to him. Do we believe the things he has said? Do we see what he has done? Do we see his death and resurrection? Are we aware of his presence now and how that changes everything? May our lives truly revolve around that. May we also, using different words, find ways of communicating that and living it out before others. Amen.